Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Brilakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and Complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and Complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Dwayne Pinto, uh, who is the CMO for uh, Zena Valve, and he was a cath lab director at Beth Israel Deaconess in uh, Medical Center in Boston. So, Dwayne, welcome, and thanks again for taking the time to participate in the Sensei Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Manas. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I'm so, uh, so happy that you invited me. No, thank you so much. And you know, this is about learning, and uh, based on our recent discussion, you are learning many different things right now. But maybe we should start first about your complex PCI experience, then we can branch out. So how did this happen? How did you get involved in doing these complex cases I've seen over the years and uh, uh, being able to push the envelope in so many fronts? Yeah, uh, Manas, it, I think it starts with wanting to be better. Um, you, you know, uh, all of us, didn't know how to do even vascular access or a cath when we started a uh, cardiology fellowship. And I think then we learned how to do it, uh, but we were never perfect at it. And um, there was always room to get better. Uh, there was always room to learn uh, different styles or approaches or thinking about things. And I think the idea and I know others are against this idea of, of perfection as a, as a goal, but maybe kind of demanding improvement uh, and demanding excellence. And I think that's really a better way to think about it is I always felt like even each of the things I was doing, for example, a right heart cath or a diagnostic cath, that uh, I could do better, that there were things that uh, I made mistakes in, and I wanted to try to minimize the chances of making those mistakes. And frankly, that started mostly with understanding why. So, uh, for example, you know, it would take me some time to engage the right coronary artery. And the questions are, well, why am I having trouble doing it? And uh, all of the things that, you know, we take for granted now, uh, I had to learn. You know, I'm actually not torquing the catheter properly. I'm not recognizing the different shape catheters necessary, different things. And then I would question why some people did things differently. So, for example, Don Bame always exchanged the JR4 catheter in the descending aorta. And everybody else exchanged it in the ascending aorta. And you could just know that and do it differently with Don every time, or you could have the courage to ask him, why do you do it that way? <laughs> and, uh, you know, he didn't like having the wire go across the arch and thought that it was easier or more safe to advance the catheter without it, without the wire going across and that sort of thing. I think there were, you know, this is the thing that fellows often struggle with is, you know, I see 10 different ways of doing the same thing, which is the right way. And it's probably all of them as long as somebody can explain to you why. So I guess that was a very long-winded answer to your question, uh, Manos, but you know you know me. <laughs> no, I love it because um, 
you know, why is important, but to your point about perfection, I thought perfection is a bad thing because then you tend to focus on, on the same thing again and again, and then you don't do anything else. So how do you reconcile, you know, being perfectionist, but then getting things done at the same time? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, um, I think it becomes, uh, what is your definition of perfection? And then as you become more experienced, you know what the right way to do something is. And that perhaps is, is executing on that right way is the perfection. And then, you know, over time, which of those steps in the procedure you might cut corners in because you're making an informed decision after you know why you do something, you say, okay, in the interests of X, I'm going to make this compromise from what I know is right. So maybe a better way to think about perfection is knowing why and knowing what's right and then making informed decisions in each of your procedures so that you're not just going through the motions, but you're actually really thinking about why am I doing each of these things? How was it that I advanced so quickly that I exceeded the end of the wire? Now, nothing bad happened and you know what's right, but say, well, maybe I'm actually going to slow down next time um, <clears throat> I come around the arch so that I don't go past the end of the wire. Then you overly slow down and now you're on floral for too long, taking a really short time advancing the catheter. If you don't care about those things, like if you don't care about going past the end of the wire or taking a long time on fluoro to exchange your catheters, then I don't think you can improve. And that's like, it, who cares about advancing catheters? Well, I care because sometimes I've created trouble uh, doing wrong, wrong things. No, I'm with you. And again, these small steps may seem inconsequential. Consequential. And as you say, most of the time it doesn't really matter. But in the cases that it does, it does matter a lot. So taking every step. But coming back to the why. So, okay, why is important. So why did you do complex PCI? <laughs> you know, that was, that's also a really uh, nice question is um, then the next step is, is wanting to acquire new skills and wanting to be better. Um, and that's, what's beautiful about our specialty is there's always more things to learn. There's always someone that's better than you at those things and you can learn them. It's not like it's impossible to do these things as long as somebody is willing to take the time to teach you and you're willing to take the time to try to get better and practice, which means being prepared. Um, and you know, Part of that is also not giving up our humanity as physicians, is recognizing when we're deficient in our skills and how to uh, get better. So, for example, I had a patient that uh, died uh, in part because I couldn't get vascular access to put an impella in prophylactically. He didn't have appropriate vascular access, and I didn't know how to do axillary access. So I really thought about this. I felt bad that, uh, you know, the, that I couldn't do something that I know existed out there. And <clears throat> I made a point to actually try to learn axillary access from Jamie McCabe and Raj Tyel. And without that kind of humility <clears throat> to recognize my deficiencies, I wouldn't have gotten better. Now I know how to do it. And now I'm more satisfied in my, my career because I know that. Um, and I also can teach other people those things. And each of those things is very satisfying to me. But 
you know, why did I learn complex PCI? Well, uh, I didn't do this career to remain stagnant or to, uh, to be happy with, uh, being average. Um, and you know, that's maybe a problem in some cases in my life and, but it's been some, something that's also helped me to get better each day. And then not only you, did you learn about access, but you even put a book out of this. So, I mean, clearly uh, you took it all the way. Yeah. And, um, you know, this was with a lot of help, right? And so uh, unlike you, Manos, who writes everything that you write, I actually was just an organizer and really Adir did a lot of the, uh, the heavy lifting because as an editor, your job is not to generate the content, but actually to oversee the content. And again, Adir did most of the work But um, I will say I recognized very early on because uh, I trained in ephemeral era that the same number, if not more patients died from vascular complications. And Manos, maybe you know this too, because trained in similar times, but there were times where, you know, ephemeral bleed, I didn't know whether I would, the person was going to die from this bleeding right in front of me. And uh, it really is an avoidable problem if you think about it conceptually like we we created this access and we should be able to do it safely and i look at each bleed as a sentinel event that we should learn from so that spurred the need to learn radial for me um which was not something i trained in when i i trained but i had to get better at this um it spurred my need to be obsessive about large bore access which then grew into axillary access And then I wanted to share all of these things because there are so many people who know so many things. And I knew that, you know, we could learn so much from each other about how to do a PCI, but sometimes this is an afterthought and it really shouldn't be. So about complex PCI, so you've learned about access from different routes, radial different routes, complex PCI, which is, you know, a very um, highly highly variable skill and demanding, and you're already in one of the most recognized centers in the U.S. and the world. So how did you learn about that? Who taught you how to do complex PCI? Was uh, it self-taught? Someone proctor you? How did that go? Yeah, it, it's everybody, actually. Um, it's the fellows saying, well, why are we doing this? Um, why are you doing it this way? I see other people doing it. And by the way, the, the, the fellows are the vectors that inoculate you with other people's practices. Uh, they're like, oh, I see so-and-so using this, or I see, why are we doing that? And immediately your reaction is, oh, well, that's because they don't know how I do it. But if you have that open mind of other people are doing things slightly differently, then you're able to hear the questions from the fellows and you're trying to understand different ways of thinking about things. There are obviously some things like an expert coming in and proctoring you in a certain technique. Uh, that's a certain technique, but I think it goes back to what is uh, a fundamental concept of, of interventional cardiology training is how do you critically acquire skills? How do you add them to your practice? And which skills are you going to add and why? And so if I were to look at my practice when I trained, most of it was eight French femoral access. Um, there were no guideliners available then. We were using different w- wires. Um, We were using heparin and 2B3As, and, uh, you know, the stents were very undeliverable. 
and we use a lot of buddy wires and things like that. And now, you know, I'm mostly radial. I use guideliners judiciously. Uh, I have a larger armamentarium of wires to help me. The equipment is a lot better when it comes to stents and balloons. And I use different anticoagulation strategies. So all of these things I've had to learn, learn about and feel like I can adapt and learn. And so I think curiosity, adaptability, and the ability to listen to other people's viewpoints uh, makes you a better complex PCI uh, operator. So to answer your question, who's taught me, it's, it's literally everybody that I listen to. You know, when I go to a conference, the other people on the panel, uh, I'm listening to what they're saying and how they're thinking about things. Uh, when somebody's presenting a case of a complication, I would think to myself, well, I, how could I have avoided that myself? And and it's just keeping an open mind in that regard. So I think everybody. And then, you know, um, there are uh, my other colleagues who've really opened up. There are certain people who've really opened up my eyes to doing things differently. Like, for example, Kevin, thinking about uh, intracoronary imaging where I was, you know, trained in a bigger is better uh, laboratory where you just use a bigger balloon and a bigger stent and, and, and deploy at high pressure. But trying to make more informed decisions from imaging and physiology is more recently um, my practice because intellectually I understood that better stents and better balloons and better guiding catheters are not going to make better PCIs. It's actually me that's the deficiency in using the technology that's already available to me. So you've been learning all along. And uh, do you still think there's things to learn in PCI? Or you think you've mastered them all at this point? No, there are definitely things to more to learn in PCI because I still have complications and make mistakes. And I still have patients that uh, have complications. And so for that, I, I know that there are better operators out there that I still need to learn from. Now, uh, Perhaps the, the slope of the curve of getting better, whatever the definition of better is, uh, is maybe flatter. But that's only through my own uh, lack of desire to expand technical abilities uh, in my 50s. You know, I was more interested in getting new things younger. And now I'm more interested in sharing what I have and uh, focusing on the things that I can practically get better at, but, uh, some things I won't actually get better at because I've peaked, you know, at learning new, uh, new skills or being able to do 50 cases in a day or something like that. I just not, am capable of things like that. Now you've trained again, literally hundreds of fellows, some of the smartest fellows around. And as you said, they're vectors for helping you learn. But when you see them work in the lab and they tell you they want to learn to do complex PCI from you, um, what do you tell them? Do you tell them that you know, it's a matter of good hands, it's a matter of judgment, uh, this is the pathway? How, how do you assess someone who comes in the lab and you work for them for the first time? Yeah, um, I would say that um, it's very rarely quick hands and, uh, and quote, good hands. I think it's this kind of thing like, you know, I'm not the most coordinated person, but I'm pretty good at PCI. And I didn't get good at PCI because my hand dexterity is the best. I mean, there are other people, there are artisans, there are painters, there are people who make jewelry, all kinds of these people are better at their 
are better at manual handwork. Um, I think it's a way that uh, you think and you approach a case and you know and you've planned out uh, what the eventualities are in your head and that's kind of created and modified by experience and watching and being open to learning. So the kind of corollary to that is um, each case, is, this sounds so trite because you hear it so many times, but each case is an opportunity to learn. Um, and everybody kind of knows that, but it's our fault that we didn't take that opportunity to learn or make the most out of it. So some people think that the more cases you do, the better you get at it, but you have to be open to learn. And uh, you have to be open to learn about every single little tiny thing about a case uh, to uh, get the most that you can out of each of these cases. So what I would say to each of the fellows who are wanting to learn complex PCI is to learn from somebody that you respect their clinical judgment first, how they think about cases and their thought processes and focus to less on, um, you know, how often do you get to rescue that diagonal yourself? You know, that comes from knowing in this kind of configuration of a retroflex diagonal, you know, this is how I'm going to approach this problem. And I remember Manos, you know, doing, telling me about this, or I watched Manos's video or somebody talked to me about this. And then you have the courage to try something um, that you haven't tried before because you've been prepared by somebody else. Because remember, you can't have done everything 20 times and then go about on your own because so many of the cases that you have, you're faced with something new that you've never seen before. And you have to solve the problem with the intellectual gifts that you've been given by your teachers. And so it's not really a manual thing. So I think the most important thing is to me is to continue to ask why, like I said earlier. And then you say, okay, why do I have this problem? And how do I solve it? And you'll hear the voices of the people who have trained you thinking about things and also helping you to avoid the traps. Actually, I remember that uh, you were the one who introduced me in other things. I know you're very curious and learning in other fields, so I know I changed my laptop from Mac to PC thanks to you, so thank you. And I got a new charger thanks to you, so, which is working, so thank you about that as well. So clearly, it's not just medicine. I mean, this is something that you're applying into many, many different aspects of your life, including your new, your new job, I guess, at Genovalve. So it's obviously a different, completely different uh, pathway, but it's still learning, right? So how did, that, how did that happen? How do you decide to, is that for learning purposes? Is it something that you were just done enough and you were bored of PCI? How did you have the motivation to move to that direction? Yeah, the, the motivation, I think, is, is recognizing that um, there are strengths that I've been developing over time that uh, are able to be applied to other domains. Whereas the things that I succeeded to up until this point are perhaps not continuing to grow and enhance. So the ability to, like I said, do the, a lot of cases or uh, uh, I, I still obviously like the cath lab and do a ton of cases and things like that. But there are a lot of other people who are just as good as me, if not better, at doing the cath procedures. And so what's a strength that I have? Because I really am I'm 50 plus years old. And in 20 years, I'm going to be 70 plus years old. And where in between can I make room for other people 
to use their expertise, desire, enthusiasm, and curiosity. But also at the same time for me, apply some of the principles that I've learned about critical reasoning, making decisions, being curious, listening to others, learning and reading. And that doesn't have to be in the cath lab or in a code or while you're putting somebody on ECMO. All the decisions that we make that have dire consequences, that require integrating a lot of information, that require listening to everybody in the team, those principles can be applied to nearly everything. And for me, it was the new challenge of helping develop a TAVR valve for a new indication for a problem that doesn't have a solution right now and really being part of that. And also there isn't or wasn't a doctor in the company. So I felt like I was bringing a new skill that they didn't have. Whereas if I go back to the cath lab, I mean, it was in the cath lab today. Um, if I go back to the cath lab, I'm actually not bringing anything new. And if I am, it really is a failure of me because I've worked with some of my colleagues for so long I trained them for many, many years. And if I haven't taught them to be independent of me, uh, then that's my failure, right? There's, there should be somebody who's just as good as me as at axillary access and putting an impella in or putting somebody on ECMO and these sorts of things. Because being a leader is planned obsolescence. And so, you know, uh, I feel good that I'm not required to do all of the things in the cath lab anymore. Uh, I feel like I've, that's a success. And so, but for me, then that means I've made myself obsolete. What's next? And, and so that was part of the, the decision-making. So do you plan to retire ever or you will be always working and learning and moving on? Yeah, that's a good question, Manos, because I saw that in like some planned questions. What do you plan to do after retire, when you retire? And I plan to do more things. Uh, I don't know what they are, you know, uh, and I like to tinker. I like to fool around. I like to fix things. That's part of why I like device development, um, you know, and, you know, maybe it's continuing to invent things. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's tinkering around the house. Uh, maybe it's playing with grandkids if they exist then, or building a motorized rocker for them. I don't know what it is, but, you know, I want to be excited about things. I want to be learning new things. I never want to be complacent even after retirement. And so retirement means I'm not doing what I was doing before for my paid job, but I hope to have satisfying hobbies that, uh, are, are keeping me intellectually stimulated. And then is it something you were born with? Were you always curious like this? Or you think it's the environment you lived in? Was the university? Were your colleagues? Or this is genetic? I think it's uh, uh, genetic and environmental. Is, you know, I was a pain in the butt when I was a kid, asking a bunch of questions, <laughs> you know, trying to like, uh, you know, figure out what's going on and bothering everybody in that way. And I think that's why, you know, being in medicine, that was, was, you know, uh, encouraged. Um, being in an academic medical center, that's obviously encouraged to be inquisitive and, and to try to learn. Um, so I think that that has always uh, wanted me to learn. I'm a competitive person by nature as well. So I like to know things. 
Um, and I like, you know, being able to answer questions um, when people have them. Obviously, when it's applied to a patient, you know, and you figure something out, that's very satisfying to me. So uh, I think it's it's partly me and partly the job that kind of enhance those those proclivities. Um, I will say, and I mentioned this earlier, is some of the things that are very adaptive in our jobs, like uh, being very goal oriented and focused and uh, and kind of tunnel vision for the goal uh, or being competitive or um, wanting to one up your uh, uh, each other intellectually. That doesn't necessarily work in all settings. And I think recognizing that uh, of where you should be competitive, where you should sit back and let other people, um, y- you know, have the floor and stimulate and being the person that stimulates uh, intellectualism or or wanting to learn more rather than the person that gives the answer is, I think, also as I've matured, you know, become a different way to apply these things. And in truth, it's become much more satisfying to me to become more of an advisor and a person that stimulates other people rather than the person with the answer. And then how do you able to balance this intensity? I mean, do you get, do you take some breaks? Do you exercise? Do you meditate? Do you write down things? How how do you keep up the energy and the motivation for all this? Yeah. uh, I mean, how do you kind of be less of a competitive person, but still be competitive person or, you know, I don't know. (laughs) No, I mean like, you know, you're learning new techniques, right? For example, like now you're learning new techniques, you're doing a new job, teaching people at home and in courses, um, doing administrative work. So how do you balance all these things, which I'm sure take a lot of time and energy, and still keep motivated and still keep in good shape that you feel capable of doing all that? Yeah, well, uh, a couple of things, and you alluded to it, is I'm a little more focused on on getting rest. You know, before I kind of – I mean, you and I trained in a time where – if you didn't sleep and you admitted the most patience and uh, you bragged to everybody how hard you worked and all that sort of thing, that was what was kind of rewarded. But um, I think the recognition that we're not superhuman, that's that, you know, someone who actually was only okay at sports and is not that great of an athlete is not kind of physically superior in some way that doesn't need sleep or something like that. There's, there's trade-offs. And recognizing my limitations physically is one thing. Uh, so trying to take care of myself a little bit better in that way. I've reinitiated doing martial arts, which I'd given up for many years um, because I was too busy at work. And that's, you know, given me uh, better, you know, physical ability, but also uh, mental ability, uh, you know, to, to relax and that sort of thing. Um, it sounds weird that you're doing martial arts to relax, but it's true. It does. Exercise helps in that regard. Um, I think other things, too, is to make a stated goal of trying to separate the job from other things. Um, you know, I'd always say that, oh, no, I got I have to take care of this. Um, and if you really break it down, many of the things you don't have to take care of in the moment. And I think that's another thing I'm trying to do more. I kind of starting to sound like uh uh, 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 our favorite CTO operator in Seattle, but you know maybe it's because we're the same age and and uh, Bill and I are starting to like understand life a little bit better. But I think being more present in the moment um, rather than distracted 
is is also actually I think more healthy mentally uh, for me. And so I think those things, um, and you know, some people may say it's med- med- meditation or mindfulness, um, but I think it's that. It's also making directed decisions for yourself of drawing boundaries between your job and and your own personal and family health so that you can actually be a contributor uh, in social situations with others rather than somebody who's, um, you know, always consumed with their jobs and things like that. And remember, we have um, this adverse uh, kind of um, reward system is everybody thinks everything that we're doing is so important that they're like, they give you a pass even when you're rude, right? How many times have people said to you, oh, you must be so busy or, or that's okay because you're busy. You must be doing your doctor stuff. And what, you're, what are you doing? You're like on Instagram or something like that or, or whatever. You know, you're not really doing anything that important. So I think it's because the nature of our job and our position, we probably get a pass when we shouldn't um, in, in, some, in kind of these, these things that contribute to our own burnout. Okay. And then how about uh... – your favorite book or movie? What are the things that, with all your searches, you've found the most useful so far or you're more excited about? Well, I think there's this really great book called CTO Fundamentals that I read all the time. You know, uh, uh, it's available on Amazon. I buy this one. No, actually, uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, it, I really would have failed in life if that's my favorite book. Sorry, Manos. But uh, no, I, actually, um, I like to read... Uh, on vacation, um, mainly Stephen King novels, because I can not have to concentrate so hard. And it's kind of like very, you know, fun for me uh, reading. But actually, I I like to listen to books now, too. Um, And so I listen and, and these sorts of things. And I like uh, more recently, I've liked some of the leadership books like um, Extreme Ownership, uh, is, is one that I personally like his leadership book, uh, John Wooden's pyramids of success. I like that one, uh, from good to great. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's these things that are not like heavy lifting, like reading Dostoevsky or something like that, but you know, it's fun and you might you get a little bit out of it and then you take something and it's good conversation pieces with your friends and things like that. Um, what was the other question besides books? I like to go to the movies with my family. Yeah, which you know. movie? What's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite movie? Uh, well, my standard is is Top Gun. I wrote a term paper about Top Gun in college, um, wow. but you know, I, I think recently, uh, you know, Top Gun Maverick I think was pretty good. But my standard answer is Star Wars because um, you know that was so transformative of a movie at my age. It was like the right time for a new science fiction movie. Um, and it was so different than everything that had come out before that. And, you know, these, it, it, I remember that time fondly. And so that's why I like that, that, that movie. Um, even though perhaps there are, are whatever your definition of best movie is, that's a little bit different, but, you know, I could watch uh, Top Gun with my friends over and over again, as I did all through college. So, you know, I think I, that's a, uh, I still like that movie. Perfect. Well, always adventure, which is great. And I guess everything we do is an adventure in a way. But what are you things that you are uh, most proud of so far? 
Yeah, that's a, a good question too. I'm most proud of my kids uh, and most proud of the accomplishments that they're making. Um, I'm most proud of, uh, of the work that I've done to be a better dad and husband. Uh, and so I think that at this point in my life, those are the things I'm most proud of. I know on your questions, you asked like, what's your best case? I don't really have a best case or a best accomplishment at work. And that maybe is telling because um, of what I do now is obviously my identity is being a doctor and it has for a very long time been being an interventional cardiologist. But the answer to your question is very, very not related to being an interventional cardiologist and a doctor. So perhaps my identity needs to adjust with what I think is important, which is in part, you know, why I make concerted decisions differently now than I did per perhaps when I was 25. Perfect. So for people who are, you know, starting now their careers, their fellows, or they're getting into the interventional field, they want to complex interventions or any interventions for that matter, what would be the you know, the Pintoism, you know, as you know, you have this very, very amazing uh, uh, to the point phrases that really summarize a lot of stuff. So will you be your advice for these people this, um, that can help them in their journey to becoming the best uh, operator or interventionist they can be? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I don't have a good Pinto. They kind of come, you know, uh, out of the blue, these Pintoisms. But uh, what I would say is, you know, don't mistake what I'm talking about with work-life balance as an excuse to be lazy intellectually. Um, it, what I mean is we should still demand excellence of ourselves, but I think we all have to be better about um, setting boundaries around that. Um, and I think that this job can take you over. So I think the idea of I really want to get good at this, I have to practice this, I have to learn, I have to be open, I have to be curious, is probably the biggest thing that I would recommend. Now, whenever anybody says, oh, work-life balance, that means like maybe you, you don't do that. And I think that that's not true. It just means that uh, you, don't have to, uh, you don't have to sacrifice your career if you make a concerted effort to think about what's important to you besides your career and work on that and then really look in the mirror and decide what am I and what do I want to be and what are my goals? I mean, Manos, you're really good about thinking about what are my goals perhaps of for the week, for the month, for the year, really codifying those and having them known. And perhaps those are things that you might share with the most important people in your life too, which is your family and think about what that is and why. And, and maybe that's something to do, too, is to to be open with the people that are important to you and develop career and life goals over uh, a period of time and have that period of introspection. Because we're so used to working towards the next thing, the next paper, the next promotion, the next procedure, the next day of work, the next salary increase or what. But um, often in our jobs... Uh, we've taken our families along for the ride and maybe they should have a say in some of this and they'll be much more understanding, I think, if they're in on the secret of what you're trying to do. And maybe you'll hear what they're trying to do also and what's important to them. So 
uh, maybe that's a it is a long-winded way of of uh, answering our question, but I think things are not so cut and dry as as we make them out to be when we graduate from medical school. Um, and I think that really thinking about those things, we didn't become doctors and go into cardiology, interventional cardiology, because we wanted to be average. You heard that from me at the very beginning. But I also say that you can take that to an extreme and not recognize that you are harming yourself and your family in the sole pursuit of that. And actually, you can become even better at what you do if you balance things out and you try to actually have organized approaches uh, to the different uh, components of your life. And prioritization is important. Well, I guess everything in moderation, how the Greeks got it right a few thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even for interventionalists. <laughs> yeah, but the Greeks are also specialists in, uh, in, in not moderation every once in a while, which is a good thing. Yeah, just ask Bacchus, okay. you know. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. You have to have both extremes and then try to make them in the middle. Yeah. But thanks again. Thanks, Ben, again. That was amazing insights on, uh, on how to learn. Obviously, um, you know, I love that your curiosity and learning. And I think that's a key component for everyone who wants to excel and get better at this, like everything else, actually. It's not just interventional. It's everything else that we do, whether it's administration or anything else. So on that note, thanks again very much. I really appreciate the time. And I'm sure we'll cross paths again very shortly. So thanks again so much, Twin. Okay, Manos. Thanks for inviting me again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sensei Podcast. 